Amen. You can be seated, and as you do so, if you're heading out to Mosaic Kids, you can see the folks in the yellow shirts on the way out. They're in the back. They're waving at you. Miss Amanda, Mr. Nat, Mr. Logan, thank you, thank you, thank you. The rest of you can open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 3, looking at verse 27. Romans chapter 3, looking at verse 27. All right, we're continuing our series in the book of Romans. So if you're just joining us this week, you're catching us uh, about, I don't know, 12 weeks in, 13 weeks in to a series on Romans. And we're in Romans chapter 3 today. Paul has been telling us the bad news for a couple of chapters. He's been telling us that we're broken and we can't possibly fix it on our own. And yet, last week, he began to turn our attention away from the hurt and towards the hope. Away from the problem and towards the solution, which is the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And so that's what we're kind of focusing in on now. Now, Paul has some interesting questions to navigate, and we're going to get to those today. But before we do that, I want you to take a moment, and I want you to think about something that you love to do. Okay? Imagine if I gave you a day off, free of all commitments, and I gave you everything necessary to do this thing, what would you do? What would you do? What? What? Uh, you'd, cl- you'd climb a mountain. Okay, you'd climb a mountain. What else? Come on. You have things you love to do. Go fishing. Okay. What else? Nap. Okay, yeah. Yeah. There's a lo- Everybody's like, yeah, nap. Uh-huh. Yeah. Now, if, if I gave you the day off and I, and I got everything ready for you to do that thing, to, to nap, to climb a mountain, to go fishing, would you look forward to that day? Like if you saw it on your schedule. Is that something you'd look forward to? When you got closer to it, would it feel like it's something you had to do or something that you got to do? Something you got to do, right? It feel like, oh man, that's something I'm excited about. See, this is the difference between must and can. What we must do is what we have to do in order to satisfy some requirement. That's what we must do. Those are the, that's the realm of you must, you have to. But what we can do is something that we are, enable, that we are able to do in order to meet a desire. So, uh, for example, I have to breathe in order to live. I must breathe. But I get to breathe the ocean air off the Oregon coast when I go there once a year. I love that. Now, that's not something that I have to do. It's something that I can do, and it's something that I love to do. You see, Paul anticipates that the church in Rome is hearing what he has said and thinking this question. Okay, if we're powerless to make ourselves righteous, but God makes us righteous in Christ, then can't we just throw out the law? Can't we just live however we want if we have grace? They're asking this question. If we have been freed from sin and freed from death and free from the curse of failing the law by the righteousness and faithfulness of Jesus, surely God does not care how we live now. But what if I told you this? What if I told you that God actually gives us a new law? A law that we are free to obey. And that actually grace doesn't mean it isn't better to obey God. It simply means that just like Israel Even when we fail to obey God, God remains faithful. That's the good news of the gospel. Let's look at Romans 3, 27 through 31, where Paul begins to deal with an objection that is going to feel like a redundancy throughout the book of Romans, because he's going to come back to it more than once. Let me read verses 27 through 31. It'll be on the screen behind me as well. And afterwards, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. The reason we do that is that we want to give thanks to God. Uh, Because he hasn't left his people in silence, he's spoken. So I'll say this is the word of the Lord, and you can respond, thanks be to God. 
then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So Paul begins by telling them that there has been a new law that's been established. It's not the law of works, it's the law of faith. Now our boasting is ruled out because it is excluded by this law of faith. So we can't come to God and say, God, I am righteous and I did it on my own. Our boasting is excluded. You can't come before God and assert your worth and say, I am worthy just because I am awesome or because I have done great things. But Paul is also trying to make a very important distinction here. See, it was a part of the church in Rome that the Jewish community believed they were morally superior to the Gentiles. The church of Rome is made up of Jews and Gentiles, and the Jews are looking over at the Gentiles saying, we're better than you and we know it, okay? That's what's going on. And the reason for this is because they were circumcised. They were the biological descendants of Abraham, and they were recipients of the law. And think law here with a capital L. Okay, law, the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, the law of Moses, or what Paul calls here the law of works. And this idea of law, the Greek word is nomos, it's almost always used in reference to the Mosaic law. Now you may think, why does that matter to me? Well, it's because just like this church, any church will find a reason for one group to start thinking they're better than another group. And that's what's happening here. So you may feel like, wow, this world is very different from my own, but it's really not. It's really not. Because it's very easy to find ourselves superior for any number of reasons. And in this church, it happened to be that the one place of superiority was the Jews were saying, look, we're circumcised, we're the biological descendants of Abraham, and we were the original audience and receptors of the Mosaic law. And so Paul distinguishes here between the law of faith and the law of works. Now, in a very interesting turn, this phrase, law of faith, it's only used one time in the whole Bible, and this is it. Whenever that happens, you should, your antenna should go up because Paul is saying something very distinct here. It's very distinct. And we have to kind of look at the context to get in mind. What is this law of faith? Because Paul is really making a play on words here. He's trying to get us to understand. He's not talking about a new law with new commandments. He's talking about a new perspective on the law. He's not talking about a new law with new commandments. He's giving you a new perspective on the law. He's saying this, under the law of works... The law, this law that God has given to his people, that is a reflection of his character, that he calls them to obey, under the law of works, if you failed the law, you were judged to death. Under this version of the law, guess what? The law was a tyrant. The law was a taskmaster, constantly berating us and reminding us that we would fail and that we could never measure up. You see, the law of works is a constant reminder that we will be condemned when we don't measure up. And yet we have been freed from the law of works. And in exchange, what is now in place is the law of faith. And this law is a new law. It is a law that demonstrates that even when we fail, God will remain faithful if we have placed our faith in him. 
If we have trusted in him through the law of faith, there is now a new norm. There is now a new rule, and that rule is this. God remains faithful even when you're faithless. And yet he calls you to be faithful even when you feel like being faithless. You see, the law, God's moral instruction to the world, it doesn't go away when we come to faith in Christ Jesus. It just loses its power to condemn. The law is transformed from a tyrant into a tutor, from the voice of a taskmaster into the voice of a father, instructing us on the way of righteousness, instructing us in the way of wisdom. You see, by faith, we receive the faithful righteousness of Christ Jesus, and we are free from the curse of the law, free from the curse of sin, free from the curse of death that comes with being a lawbreaker. Why? Because we've been placed in Christ. Christ, he was the perfect law keeper. You see, this is the reason why Christ's moral obedience was of such great significance. This is the reason why the 30 years that precede Jesus' public ministry is so significant for us as a believer. Why? Because each and every one of those days where Christ was perfectly faithful, it is a credit to the account of the Christian. That while we have maybe never had a day where we were perfectly faithful, Christ only had days where he was perfectly faithful. And in salvation, all of those perfectly faithful days are given over to us and we can never exhaust their reward or their merit. That's really good news. That's really good news that all of Christ's faithfulness is given over to us. And Paul is sensing that the church in Rome, having heard this, might think this. Well, hold on. If all of Christ's faithfulness is given over to us, can't we just do whatever we want? Right? I mean, if, if like you're telling us that God has given us this inexhaustible well of grace, and we can never outrun it, and he's going to be faithful even when we're faithless, then why would we obey? Why would we do anything different? Why would we swim against the current? Why would we go against the grain? He, he understands that for the Jewish audience... They are struggling with this idea. Our obedience is our right standing before God. And the Gentile audience is struggling with this. If God has given us right standing apart from our obedience, then why obey? And I'll tell you, most churches are made up of those same two groups of people. There are some of you in here who feel like you constantly hear the voice of condemnation when you don't measure up. And you need a part of what Paul's saying here, which is that you're declared righteous in Christ, even when you feel like you don't measure up. If you've trusted and placed your faith in Jesus, guess what? When you obey, that's good. But it's not necessary because God has called you beloved in Christ. And it's not contingent on your obedience. Some of you need to hear that because you're anxious. You feel clogged by shame. Others need to hear this message, which is God is inviting you to be faithful. God is inviting you to obedience. And that maybe if this group doesn't take grace seriously enough, maybe this group is too flippant with grace. See, Paul knows who he's speaking to. And he knows what every church will be composed of. Two groups, one of which demeans grace and the other which doesn't believe grace. Paul knows this. He knows this about our hearts. The word, the spirit of God that inspires the word knows it. And because our obedience should merit no boasting, because it's rooted in the faithfulness of Christ, all glory belongs to him. We don't get to boast. We don't get to boast in saying, guess what? I'll live however I want. This is boasting in licentiousness. 
This is boasting and lustfulness, saying, well, because God has given me grace, I can do whatever I want. And we also don't boast in our legalism by saying, listen, I've got to measure up. I've got to make sure that I obey. I've got to make sure that I'm the best at all times. You see, both kinds of boasting are ruled out. And God is inviting us in to a new way, to the law of faith. And I think when people will start to talk about obedience, they start to hear legalism and self-righteousness. But hold on. Pastor, are you telling me that we should obey? No, I'm saying that you get to obey, and that's very different. It's not something the Christian must do. It's something that the Christian can do. And Paul is telling us and is going to tell us that it is better to obey. It's better to obey on the foundation of grace. You see, the problem with self-righteousness isn't that people obey God in his words. We often think any call to obedience is a call to legalism. That's not what legalism is. Legalism and self-righteousness isn't God calling his people to obey God in his words. The problem with self-righteousness, the problem with legalism, the problem with self-justification is that you begin to think that your obedience is what makes you special in the eyes of God. That's the problem with self-righteousness. The problem with self-righteousness is not the obedience. The problem with self-righteousness is the motivation for obedience which is, if I do this, then God will be pleased with me. And God in Christ is shouting down, I am pleased with you, contingent on nothing and on the foundation of God's inviolable and unbreakable pleasure for all those who are in Christ. He invites us to obey. You see, the law of faith is the invitation into freely obeying God by standing in the righteousness and faithfulness of Christ and looking to imitate his righteousness and faithfulness. So we don't come to God boasting in our obedience, nor do we attempt to convince ourselves or others by boasting in our good works, because God isn't impressed with them. He's not inviting us to impress him. He's inviting us to obey him. And at the same time, obeying God is a good thing. Faith isn't just affections. It's not just mental assent or agreement. It's allegiance of our hands to the way of Christ, this way of Christ, which is the perfect embodiment of the law. I'm not saying that if you obey God, he will save you. But I am saying if you have been saved, then you can obey God, and it's better to obey him. And look where Paul goes here in verse 28. Because he begins by talking about the law of faith, but then he moves in to talking again in the language of justification. Verse 28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is, the, is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. You see, as if there's any confusion, Paul wants to make sure that his audience knows that this law of faith does not violate what he has said and what he will say about justification. What does it mean to be justified? It means to be declared righteous on the basis of what Christ has done. It means that God looks at Christ and says, I'm going to give to you what properly belongs to the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And I'm going to do that by grace, my unconditional favor. And you're going to receive it through faith, which is the instrument of our salvation. Faith, which is this cocktail of agreement, affections, and allegiance, our head, our heart, our hands. This is what God is inviting us into to receive this declaration of righteousness. And we receive it because Christ has been righteous on our behalf. And we are justified apart from works of the law. This phrase, works of the law. 
Do you know what he's talking about? Again, he's not just talking about obedience. Because Paul wants you to obey. He knows it's a better way. Works of the law here, he's talking about circumcision. He's talking about boundary markers. Do you know how we know this? Because what does Paul specify in the next two verses? Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not also the God of Gentiles? Why does he make this distinction? Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. When Paul talks about the law of works, he's not saying you don't need to obey God. He's also not saying you shouldn't obey God. He he believes it's better for you to obey God. When he says we're not justified by works of the law, he is speaking specifically about the key divisive boundary marker that existed between the Jews and the Gentiles in the church in Rome. And what was that? Circumcision. Circumcision. That was the way that Jews preserved their distinctiveness in the world. And when a broken heart caught wind of that, it became not a manner of showing distinctiveness among people horizontally. It became a way of designating special favor of God. They had corrupted what God had intended to be clarifying. This phrase, works of the law, it's used with specific reference to the way that Jews distinguish themselves from their Gentile neighbors, namely circumcision. And Paul is saying, no, 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 you're not justified by works of the law. You're not justified by circumcision. You're justified by faith. God has declared you righteous in Jesus. And having been declared righteous in Christ, we are now invited, Jew and Gentile, to practice righteousness in our lives. You see, to the Gentiles in the church in Rome, they would have heard this. To become justified, to be declared righteous, you must be a Jew. You must be circumcised. And Paul is saying, listen, I don't want there to be any degree of confusion. You do not have to be circumcised to be justified. You do not have to become a Jew in order to be made righteous. This is a distinction, a difference that Paul is making that he hopes will contribute incredible clarity to a community that is divided against itself. To a community that is divided because they have forgotten what it means to be found faithful in the eyes of God. One group believes that it is in their body and in their obedience that they are counted righteousness before God. And the other group, Paul's afraid they might be missing the call to obedience. The call to following God. So look, in in verse 31, how does Paul conclude? He says, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So if the law of works is done, and we aren't justified by circumcision or by works of the law, if you don't have to obey God in order to earn favor with God, then I guess we can just throw out the law, right? Paul anticipates this question. And the answer is, by no means. Now, it's hard to kind of render this properly, but this is a very emphatic way of saying no, okay? It's a very strong way of saying no. It's essentially Paul is saying no, no, no. He uses it again in Romans 6.1 to basically make the same point. What shall we say to these things? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. No, no, no. Paul uses this phrase in these two places for a very specific purpose. Because he knows how tempting it is to receive grace on Sunday and forget it on Monday. He knows how easy it is to receive forgiveness. Not as the foundation for freedom to obey, but for freedom to run away. 
Paul knows how tempting it is to receive grace and say, well, if I've got the the net of grace underneath me, then I can jump off into all manner of wickedness. Paul knows how easy it is to presume upon grace. He knows how easy it is to take grace for granted. And so he is emphatic. He's saying, no, no, no. On the contrary, we uphold the law. But this can feel confusing to us. And if you feel confused, it's okay because it's a little bit confusing. He's saying, well, we don't need the law. You, you, You don't must obey the law. You don't have to obey the law but we should uphold it. And why would we do that? Well, because the law is the standard of God's holiness. It's a reflection of his character. And it has been fulfilled in Christ. And by faith, we receive the full blessings and benefits of all that Christ has done in perfectly keeping the law. You can stand on that. You can stand on the assurance that justification for those who are in Christ, a declaration that I should say you could receive today by placing your faith in Christ Jesus. You should stand on that because it is an unbreakable, unshakable foundation. It really is. Martin Luther said the doctrine of justification is the doctrine by which the church stands or falls. It's a cornerstone. It's a foundation. It's solid. But the question that we should be asking is why have I been given this foundation? Why have I been given this strong, unassailable, unbreakable, unshakable bedrock? For what purpose? Is it to abandon it? Why has God made the legs of faith so stable in the faithfulness of Christ? Why? So that we might enjoy the benefits of a free obedience to God. Can you imagine such a thing? Okay, for the anxious and troubled heart, it is hard for you to imagine a free and delighted obedience in God. I know. Always feeling like, you know, you're not doing enough. Always feeling like you're never measuring up. You could always be better. I could read my Bible more. You know, when I ask members at Mosaic, how are you doing? How's your walk with the Lord? Many times. Boom. Head drops. Shoulders come up. Always some sense of, if I could just kick it into high gear, if I could just do a little bit more, right? If I could just measure up a little bit more, if I could just impress God a little bit more, if I could just obey, you know, Pastor, I'm really not reading my Bible like I should. I'm really not praying like I should. You know, we missed worship a couple of times last month. You know, I I know that my neighbor doesn't know the Lord, and I feel like I should share the gospel with him. I understand the troubles of an anxious and shame-based heart. Because that's how my heart works. I'm a hustler. I don't know if you're an Enneagram fan, but I'm an Enneagram 3. It's an achiever. There's never enough for me. There's never enough measuring up. I break through one wall, I'm looking at the next 20, okay? So I understand the troubles of an anxious heart. And yet, for you, anxious heart, who feels like you can never do enough obedience, Paul, God's word is saying to you this. You've been given a foundation you'll never lose. It can't be broken. It can't be disrupted. It can't be changed. Why? Because it's rooted in the faithfulness of Christ. Nothing can change that. It's okay. Breathe. Rest in the Lord's provision of righteousness. And then for some of us, for some of us it feels like, 
okay, well, I've been given salvation. I got my ticket punched. I got my VIP access to God. I profess faith in Christ. I was baptized. And now, now, you know, I, I'm just going to kind of do what I want to do. I'm going to kind of live how I want to live. And God is saying, there's a better way. There's a way of wisdom and of righteousness and of joy. There's a blessed way. You see, the invitation to God is not obey. It's come, obey. It's not the demand of an angry father. It's the invitation of God to you. Walk in obedience. We don't overthrow the law. We uphold the law. Because now we know that the law doesn't have the power to condemn us. We, we, we delight in living under the law because the law is a tutor. The law is a voice of wisdom. The law is a mentor towards maturity. That's what it's doing for us. It no longer condemns us. It doesn't have the power to condemn us any longer. But it does have the power and insight to instruct us. And its instructions are good. Now look at me because I don't want you to miss this. For those justified by faith in Christ, you can never sink lower than beloved in Christ for good forever. For those who are declared righteous in Jesus, it doesn't matter what you've done, what you're doing, or what you will do. You can never sink lower than beloved in Christ for good forever. You can never drop beneath that. But for those in Christ, you can grow that it can flourish. You can nurture and cultivate it. Never sinking beneath it when you fail, but you can grow in your rich enjoyment. You can never lose the blessings in Christ Jesus, but you can develop spiritual taste buds to enjoy them better and deeper and more richer and more intimately. That is possible, and it's one of the reasons for our obedience. Our obedience is not mere altruism. Nor is it some debt we have to repay. Our obedience is motivated for reward. And the reward is the very presence of God. I'm telling you this. We often as Christians think that obedience to the law is a debt that we've been paid. Okay, God saved me by grace. But since God has saved me by grace, I now have to render obedience to the God who has saved me by grace. That's the debt. Now, I don't owe the debt of death any longer, but I do owe the debt of obedience. That's not how the Bible talks about Christian obedience. Nor does the Bible talk about Christian obedience as mere altruism. Well, you should do it merely because God's word says that you should. It's what God's word says. It's perfect. Now, it is what God's word says, and it is perfect. But the motivation for Christian obedience is not detached from our life. It's for the purpose of deeper reward, of greater intimacy with God. And that's actually possible. It's actually possible to enrich and nurture and cultivate rich enjoyment of all that God has for us in Jesus. We can never sink below beloved in God. That's what justification means. But we can grow on its foundation. It is rich and fertile soil that will never be stripped mined by the toxicity of our sin or the brokenness of the world. And when we obey, good things grow in it. Good and beautiful things. When we think about obedience like this, when we think about what this life looks like, I want you to think about a coma and waking up from a coma, right? Imagine that I woke up from a coma that I'd been in for years, and it was a miracle. I would be alive, and I would be awake, 
but I would need to grow and develop back into functioning, wouldn't I? Not everything would be working as it was intended to. I would have had muscles that have atrophied. I would have things that I'd have to relearn. It would be incredibly difficult work. It would be hard work. It would be labor to do so. But I would be alive and I would be awake. Something that I had not accomplished on my own. And that now awake and alive, do you know what I would be? I would be motivated to live. (laughs) Having come that close to the razor thin edge of death, I would be incredibly motivated to do what they wanted me to do. To recover. To begin to rehabilitate. To begin to be able to live again. To not be confined to what has been, but to move into what I was being invited to be in. And this is what happens in salvation. God wakes us up from a long sleep, from being spiritually comatose. And then with this new life, alive and awake, he says, live. Live. Live freely. Go out and enjoy the world. And it is work to learn how to live in the righteousness that we've been freely granted. And when we begin to live in that righteousness, we will find temptation to boast, just like the Jews in the church in Rome. But we will not boast. There is no room to boast because the law of faith has leveled the playing field. We are all needy. And regardless of our track record, we can be justified by faith apart from works of the law. But faithfulness obedience to God's moral instruction, it is the fruit of faith. Having received God's grace as a foundation, we stand on it to live lives of faithfulness and righteousness. And in so doing, our spiritual taste buds are sharpened and we get pulled further up and further in to enjoying all that God has for us in Jesus. I gotta tell you, the Christian life is worth living Because when we obey God, there is greater and greater delight, nearness and intimacy with him. And I know, because God's word tells me, that when I fail, and I will fail, I have failed. When I fail, I am not condemned by that law. I am on a foundation that is unbreakable and unshakable. And that the first word that God speaks over me when I bring my failure to him is beloved, son, beloved, daughter. This is God's pronouncement upon our lives by grace through faith in Christ where we are declared righteous for good forever. And on this foundation, we are invited to walk in a free obedience, to walk in righteousness, to walk in wisdom. Will you walk with me into that together? Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that it provides a sure foundation that is unassailable by the brokenness of the world and by the brokenness of our lives. That the law that was once a tyrant over our lives, condemning us as a taskmaster to a hopeless obedience only to be met with death and judgment, has been transformed into a tutor a tutor to instruct us in wisdom and righteousness and faithfulness. I pray that we would be a people who are not shamed by our disobedience to the law, but who are free by grace to walk in conformity to the ways of Christ. For the anxious hearts in this room, God, free them from the torment of shame that accompanies disobedience. 
I pray that they would no longer hear the whispers of a tyrannical law, but they would hear the shouts of a loving father, inviting them in to receive grace upon grace, inexhaustible, a well that will never run dry, and that as you nourish them with grace, they would go out free to obey. And I pray for those among us who might just feel as if grace is the greatest covering to live however they would want. I pray, God, that you would invite them into the better way of obedience. It will be costly. It will be hard. And yet you will be there. And I pray that you will enrich their intimacy with you. Sharpen their spiritual taste buds so that they might know the sweetness and the joy of nearness to God. We love you. We come to you in Christ and by the power of the Spirit. Amen.